Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lots of people now recognize the company, the Octopus Group. But most of them associate it with Octopus Energy, the startup energy company which now serves over 5 million customers. However, the origin story of the Octopus Group goes back to the turn of the millennium. And it was started by two investment managers, Chris and Simon, who both struck out on their own in their early 20s. Startup life can seem glamorous, but it can be quite stressful. It was really hard. We had a little bit of savings to fall back on, not very much. I think all of us had to get our girlfriends to help pay our rent through that first difficult year. We had no income at all for 10 or 11 months. And there just wasn't the infrastructure back then. In today's repost episode, our guest is Chris Hewlett, co-founder of the Octopus Group. Two decades ago, Chris made the decision to leave a stable job and establish his own fund management company alongside Simon. It was definitely difficult. It certainly made us realise that starting a business is not an easy thing to do. In the end, you need immense determination. You need real passion for what you're doing. You've really got to believe in yourself because you're fundamentally trying to persuade people. Today, they have almost 13 billion under management on behalf of over 63,000 investors and have over 750 employees. And the Octopus Energy was actually a corporate spin-out. Alongside those lofty ambitions, they were also the first company to ever partner with Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, back when our biggest outlay was a £50 Amazon mic and a few cushions around my laptop for soundproofing. Welcome to today's show, Chris. We start by asking everyone, what was the work experience that you undertook and also what was your first paid job? Hi, Jimmy. Uh, Well, great to be here. Let me take you back 30 years. So it was just after my GCSEs and the bit of work experience I did that summer was uh, spending six weeks at one of the government's research laboratories. I was particularly keen on science at the time. I was about to start doing science A-levels. And so I managed to get a role working in a lab testing cow's brains for a disease called BSE. Your young listeners may not know much about BSE, but if you go back 30 years, this is a really big deal. It was causing all sorts of problems in the country. Animals were being slaughtered to try and deal with this disease. And my job was to help people in this research lab process slices of brain to see whether these deceased cows had actually got the disease or not. A great introduction to life in the lab, pretty gory at times and quite dramatic in many ways for a 16-year-old. But it also really showed me that I didn't really want a life in a lab. That wasn't for me. I put it down to a great experience. It was a great summer where it was some really fun, fantastic, dedicated people trying to save the country from this really quite nasty disease. But it changed my perspective on what kind of career I wanted and really led me to conclude that moving into a job in finance and investment was probably where I was going to be much more suited. It's interesting you talk about it because it has almost slipped from our 
conscious as a country. As you say, at the time, it, it dominated everything, similar to the way that pandemic is now dominating the news. And, you know, sometimes it's quite difficult, particularly for the farming community, to see a way through it. Like you say, some of the great value of work experience can be knowing that you don't want to go into a particular industry. And so what was your first paid job? Well, that really came about after two internships I'd done when I was at university. And I totally agree. One of the real values of work experience is to get a feel for things. And it's something that I'd always encourage people to do is try different jobs. It's a very long career if you're stuck in a job you don't enjoy. And so when I was at university, I did two internships, one with an investment bank and one with a fund management company called Mercury. And I really enjoyed the fund management one. So I then ended up applying to their graduate scheme, being accepted onto that. And so I started my first full-time permanent job at Mercury Asset Management in September 1997. Really great place to learn. Probably 25, 30 other people on the graduate training program. Some really bright people from all sorts of backgrounds, different countries and so on. And a great place to learn the kind of nuts and bolts of fund management. Of course, on that. 2530 cohort was Simon, who you went on to found Octopus with after just a few years at Mercury. Well, exactly. Yeah. So it was one of these bits of good fortune, I suppose, that we got to know each other during the course of the graduate program. We ended up working together on the global equity team at Mercury, along with Guy, who was the other founder of Octopus. We just realized in late 1999, early 2000, that we had the same sort of passion for wanting to set up our own company. We really loved the idea of investing into smaller businesses and to really backing entrepreneurs, helping them to grow their companies. And so we thought, what could be a better way of doing that than trying to start our own company to do that, to raise funds and to be investing in UK smaller companies, something which we weren't really able to do at Mercury. So with perhaps a, a slight rash of youthfulness, at a time when very few young people were really starting companies, we set up Octopus in my living room. We had one phone line, one copy of the Yellow Pages. We didn't really have anything like a fancy business plan. We had about a sheet and a half of paper with a few ideas sketched out on it. And we started trying to find our way in the world, calling up lots of people, pestering them for meetings. We had lots and lots of people tell us we were mad. We had people shredding our emails and telling us that we would never get anywhere. But I think maybe through force of personality, determination, and a year of hard work, we managed to raise a bit of money to start the business and Octopus was born. Was there any point in that first year where you thought the naysayers might be right in what they were saying? Because it is an incredible story to kind of start out like that. And it's changed so much. The opportunities for entrepreneurs have become so much more plentiful. But like you say, sitting down with the yellow pages, which our younger listeners will also have to Google that as well, it must have been quite daunting. Were there points when you thought we're not going to be able to make this work? Well, it was really hard. We had a little bit of savings to fall back on, not very much. I think all of us had to get our girlfriends to help pay our rent through that first difficult year. We had no income at all for 10 or 11 months. And there just wasn't the infrastructure back then in terms of established angel networks to back entrepreneurs. Really hard to raise that early money that we needed to start the business. And something which really toughened us up. I always think it's one of those times when we're really lucky that we weren't sole founders because it meant we had people to share that challenge with. You could go for a beer in the evening and together we were all going through the same thing. And that was really helpful, I think, because it was definitely difficult. It certainly made us realize that starting a business is not an easy thing to do. In the end, you need immense determination. You need real passion for what you're doing. You really got to believe in yourself because you're fundamentally trying to persuade people. We were at the time 23, 25, 26 years old between the three of us. We didn't have a whole lot to offer other than our determination to build a business and our plans, which we could articulate. 
But we haven't got a track record of any great note. We just had that vision and passion. And that's a hard ask to get people to invest a couple of million pounds in a business of that stage. But throughout that difficult 2000, when the stock market was falling week by week, NASDAQ, I think, hit its peak pretty much the day we resigned from Mercury. The tech boom had come to an end wasn't an easy time to be raising money, but I think probably one of our best ever achievements was to do that. And it told us a lot about what was going to be needed to be successful in, in running the business after that. And it spawned so much more in the last 20 years. And we were just talking beforehand about everything that Octopus now entails. And actually, you set up Octopus Energy five years ago under the Octopus umbrella. And I just wondered if you could talk to us a bit more about how the companies evolved, because your mission statement talks about wanting to improve lives. And I know you've talked on the record about you wanting Octopus to be in every home in the UK, but you're also scaling internationally now at a pretty quick rate as well. So can you just talk us through the evolution of the Octopus story? So today, I think we describe Octopus. It's become a group of companies investing in the people, the ideas, and the industries that help change the world. And that really has always been our vision. I just don't think 10 or 20 years ago, we would have articulated in quite that way. And of course, when you start a business, you can have big, grand plans for the future. You've got to live it day by day. A business grows and evolves bit by bit. That initial focus on UK smaller companies, UK venture capital, was what powered the business in the early years. And then there was a point at about 2010 when we started to achieve some scale in those areas, but we were looking to see how best to expand the business. I remember one of the young fund managers at Oculus came and stood by the desk that Simon and I sat at. He was talking about this growing trend for solar power in other countries in Europe. And he was really passionate about it. But I remember thinking that might, well, no, I can't imagine why we'd invest in that area. There were like dozens of reasons why I thought it wouldn't work. But Matt was very persistent. He kept coming back to talk to us day after day. And after a few weeks, I said, okay, get on and, and try, see what you can do, Matt. And today, Matt Searchill is the co-head of our Optimus Renewables team. It's about 80 people. It's invested three billion pounds or so in building solar and wind science in the UK, Europe, Australia. And it's one of the leading players in that sector. So our expansion these new areas like renewables and other sectors in like healthcare property has often come about through good ideas from people around the organization. And that's really what I'm most proud about. Octopus is not a business of two entrepreneurs. It's a business of hundreds of entrepreneurs. And that culture is so key. And it's also what led us into power supply. We want to make a difference to sectors where we think people are getting a bad deal, sectors where consumers are looking for something different. Financial services was like that 20 years ago, and I'd say it still is now. I think too many businesses are in it for how much money they can make rather than trying to give customers something great. And customer service was also terrible in the power supply sector. Most people hate their supplier. They hate the way it works. The power supply send you a bill in the post. You have to send a check back. For years, it hadn't really evolved and changed. And we thought this is a sector we can make a real difference to. And so when we bumped into Greg Jackson, who we didn't know at the time, but when we had a coffee with him, he was telling us about his own similar vision for revolutionizing the energy sector. We thought, ah, oh, this is perfect. Why don't we team up with Greg? And so Octopus Energy was born and Greg and his team have done a wonderful job over the past five years and growing from nothing to the point where today we've got 2 million customers. Our tech platform is powering utilities in other countries around the world. And we have a real vision for playing a big role in the whole journey to net zero. It's going to take customer focus. It's going to take technology. And that, I think, is what Greg and his team can do. And how did that first meeting with Greg come about? Because that sort of serendipity is often so important for entrepreneurs. And it's been very difficult to recreate in the last year with the pandemic. But how did that meeting come about? Well, we always say to people, we're really happy to have a coffee, often with no agenda, because you never know what comes from it. 
many of those coffees don't really need anyway. You might meet someone, you might think they're interesting, they're doing something that you could imagine them being successful at. But every now and again, you meet someone where that meeting of minds is so powerful and where it's also clear how we could play a role in working with them or partnering with them or investing in their business. And so we've tried to be as externally minded as we can. And maybe this is one of the learnings we've had in recent years is you can't run a business just off a spreadsheet. You can't run a business sat at your desk being purely internal. Got to get out there and meet people. That's what leads to the interesting ideas that can help revolutionize your organization. In our case, the benefit of those many, many coffees was one day, Simon was introduced by someone he knew to Greg. They met to talk about all sorts of things. And near the end of that meeting, Greg happened to mention that he was really interested in energy. And it kind of went from there. These are things that you can't plan for, you can't anticipate, you can't structure. You just have to get out there with an enthusiasm for learning, trying to find people where there's scope to do something a bit different, looking for people with that curiosity, that passion, that dream that we think could be a really big part of Octopus going forwards. We're always interested in finding new things that we could do, whether it's a different investment team that could join the business, whether it's a way of expanding what we do in other parts of financial services. Greg is always out there looking for great ideas to bring into his business, great people who can join his organization to help clarify it on for where it is today. And so that mentality is something I'm keen to make sure always pervades the way we think at Octopus. And that permission to learn has been a recurring thing that we've had from all the entrepreneurs on the show. I just wanted to pick up on there. You talked about how Octopus is not just two entrepreneurs, but it's almost a whole family of entrepreneurs. And I know that you have a very exciting platform called Springboard, which allows people within the business to come forward with ideas. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that? To me, the power to encourage people to become an entrepreneur is one of the greatest gifts that any of us who set up a business can really have. And I'm very conscious that we were lucky. We got the chance to set up Octopus and we managed to find a way to make that work. Many people have an idea that they could turn into a business. And I'm really keen that everyone gets the chance to do that. Entrepreneurs can come in all sorts of different types and forms. Anyone anywhere around the country could have the potential to be an entrepreneur of the future. And any idea that people have that they really believe in, I think people should have a chance to give that a go. And so the Octopus Springboard concept is really about helping people in the business who want to have a go at starting their own company, have the chance to do that. Often when people said to us they had an idea, they would also say, but actually, I'm not sure I can afford to do it. I wouldn't be able to go months without earning any income, wouldn't be able to pay my rent or pay my mortgage. And so we said, well, why don't we help you with that? We'll support you for a few months. We'll encourage you. We'll mentor you. We'll help find the right kind of training support you might need. And we'll deal with those early few months of that financial challenge by paying you something for a while too. So you can leave without to worry about how you're going to pay your rent. And so you can dedicate yourself to trying to start a business for a few months. If it works, then brilliant. Off you go with our blessing to grow your company and we'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. Maybe we'll become bigger investors in the business too. But if it doesn't work, then we said to people, come back and do your old job at And you would have learned so much in those few months from trying to get your business up and running that you'd be a way more powerful employee for us on the basis of those experiences. There's nothing quite like trying to set up a business to really toughen you up, to really give you all those new learnings that I think is so important in the business setting. So for us, Springboard's worked beautifully and we're really keen to keep on expanding it. When people come up to my desk with an idea about a business that they're thinking of setting up, I don't think, oh, that's a real shame. I'm going to lose that person for Octopus. I think, oh, great. If we can inspire Right, other people to have a go at setting up a business. That is such a great thing. It's almost like an entrepreneurial sabbatical, potentially, for people. 
Yeah, except it's got two sides to it. So it can either morph into off they go with their new business or they can come back to their job. And so there shouldn't be the kind of downside. And we're trying to take away the fact that for many people, they say they would love to have a go at starting a business if only they could afford to do so. I think it's a real shame if there's people, either an octopus or more broadly in society, who could become an entrepreneur. It's just they can't afford to do so. I think figuring out how to crack that is going to be a really important part of how the government creates that entrepreneurial structure for the future. I think it's going to be so important for the recovery from COVID. Well, I think there's a perception that we've all become a bit more risk averse with the pandemic. And like you say, being an entrepreneur is a big risk that you're taking with it. When you came into the fund management industry 20 years ago as Octopus, you were the disruptor. And now sort of 20 years on, you perhaps bit more part of the establishment. And I was going to ask about how you continue to be innovative and stop yourselves being disrupted as well. And would you put Springboard down to a big part of that? Yeah, Springboard is, is definitely part of that. Some of the ideas people come up with are financial services rates. Some are, have nothing to do with the sector that we're in. They're totally different types of ideas, and that's great. That culture of innovation is something you've got to work really hard at. The whole culture of an organization has to be any management team's number one priority. So the minute you start to lose that as a business grows, then you're going to morph into being just like any other business. And we spent 20 years trying to build and maintain the culture of octopus, where people of any age, any level of experience can come up with ideas. I remember three or four years ago, we had two youngsters, probably 21, 22, who were over from Australia on short-term visas working on our customer services team. They said to me and Simon, a couple of us, can we have half an hour of your time? We want to pitch an idea to you. And they talked very passionately about why we should create a team in Australia to start replicating down under the same success we'd had in the UK building solar and wind farms. And they were so persuasive that Within six months, we'd created a team of 10 people. We'd opened an office in Melbourne and we were underway in Australia. The idea had been kind of slightly bubbling around, but hearing these couple of 21-year-olds talk about why we should be taking those steps, they'd thought it all through. They had some really interesting ideas. They could see how we could take the experiences we had in the UK and put it to work in Australia. I think it's really important that you maintain a culture where anyone can be the source of those ideas. The next product ideas for the business or the next idea of where a new team could come from or some great idea for marketing our products or how to create the culture going when we've all been sat at home for the past year during the pandemic. Those ideas really do come from anywhere. And so empowering people to feel their ideas will be listened to. They can speak up. We want to hear their ideas. This isn't a sort of structure where good ideas only come from the senior management team. I think businesses go really wrong when they stop listening and they think that it can be kind of dictated from the top what happens to a business. So many of the best things we've done have come about through ideas often from some of the most inexperienced people in the company. It's so interesting. And yeah, I mean, solar panels in Australia does seem to make more sense than in the UK. I could see some arguments. Twice as many hours of daylight every year, it makes a real difference to the economics. And that simple proposition three years ago has led to the point where about six months back, we finished work building what is now Australia's largest solar farm with about $500 million of investment in it. Ideas can really lead to actions. And that is something which I think is a big part of Octopus. We are doing things that people can relate to, whether it's investing in businesses that then go on to grow and create jobs or investing in building renewable assets or care homes or whatever it might be. There's a realness to it that I think people really enjoy and appreciate. You've grown to 750 people now. You talked about how important the culture is. What have been the challenges in keeping that entrepreneurial culture going as you got through that many people? Where were the sort of tipping points that happened when you didn't know everyone or you couldn't do everyone's reviews? It would be fascinating to hear about that. 
Yeah, it's a real journey that you go on as a business starts to scale. I remember the day when we hired the first person into the team, and that felt a really big step and a real challenge of how on earth do you bring someone in to join three founders in an organization? But pretty quickly, you get used to it. You learn the hard way about hiring people and what's good, what's bad. You learn pretty quick what kind of people can fit into a startup culture. And you realize actually CVs are not that useful for that because the things that are so important in a fast-growing business are often things that are less valued by large companies. The kind of thing you can't necessarily teach people, the thing that you can't really tell from someone's CV. I remember when you get to maybe 50 people, you stand up at your desk, you can just about see everyone. And then as the business grows and you have more office space, you can't see everyone. I remember a really embarrassing moment when I was in the lift and I said to someone, what floor are you going on? Assuming they worked at a different company on a different floor in the building. They said, well, same floor as you are. And they knew me. I didn't know them. And that was when I realized the way you run a business has to change as an organization gets bigger. You've got to work even harder at communication, even harder at culture. And you also find as a business grows, the kind of people you need changed. In the early days, you need people who are generalists who can turn their hand to anything. They're willing to roll their sleeves up and just get stuck in and make things happen. And as the business grows, you need more specialists. You start to create teams that do particular things. You're hiring people with specific skills. In the first few years, I used to devote Thursday afternoons to writing checks to pay the bills and trying to figure out with no accountancy qualifications how on earth to keep our management accounts and do the books. You have to turn your hand to everything in those early times. And then you start to hire people who can do those specific roles. But I'd also say a business is a team. It's not a family. And so teams have to focus on the quality of people in every position. And I think that makes a business particularly hard is where then the business is growing more quickly than some of the people in it. And that makes the hard choices about when you have to upgrade people in particular roles or make changes to people. And it's not easy to do, but you've got to do it. You've got to keep the business moving forward. And the only thing that is going to hold you back, in my view, is not keeping the quality of people going fast enough. The success of the business is going to be driven by the people in it. And you've got to remember that all the time. You've got to focus relentlessly on the culture. You've got to focus really hard on recruitment and then coaching people, training them, developing them. And I'd also say setting objectives, making sure everyone in the business knows what direction they're going in, what's expected of them, what we need them to achieve in that year. And everyone needs to know how the role they play ties into the organization as a whole. One of the things that we used to show people when they joined the business was a video of JFK announcing that the US was going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. How that inspired people. So a few years later, when he went on a visit to a factory at NASA, so the story goes, he saw someone crushing the floor of the factory and he said to that person, what do you do? And rather than the guy saying, oh, I'm, a, you know, I'm a janitor, I'm brushing the floor, he said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And that is the kind of culture of we're all in this together. We all know what we're shooting for as a business. That's the kind of culture that you really need as an organization. Yeah, that is so inspiring to be able to think about that. When it comes to recruitment, how does that change? Because obviously a lot of the listeners to this show are looking for potentially next steps, some moving out of corporates to startups or scale-ups even. We even have university students listening and apprentices as well. How can you go about putting yourself out there? I mean, obviously it's changed dramatically in the 20 years you've been running Octopus, but how can people find out about the opportunities that are available and assess their own skill sets as well, because that's often a real challenge for people is that sometimes it's not so easy to assess your own skills. 
No, it's not easy. And it's quite hard to relate to what businesses want. And an organization like Octopus, we have so many different types of roles, people with different skills and backgrounds. What makes an organization strong is the strength of that cohesive capability of everyone in the company. When I'm talking to people, I want to be wowed by people. I'm looking to bring people into the organization who can make a real difference. People you just know are going to add something to the organization. That bar is quite high and it should be. I think where companies go wrong is when they say, oh, we've interviewed 10 people for the role. We're going to hire the best one we found. Well, is that best person you found out of those 10 actually any good? If not, keep looking. We want to make sure that bar is really high. So for us, I'm thinking, is that person someone I'd love to have in the organization? Can I imagine them bringing some new skills? Do they have that combination of that sort of intellect, curiosity, drive, determination, work ethic? Do they have a spark about them? You sort of know it when you see it. It's great when you bring someone into the company and years later, they've done some amazing things. You think, yeah, I was right about them. They really did add something. It doesn't happen very often when you meet someone who creates that kind of feeling. But when you see people like that, you've got to move heaven and earth to bring them into your company because they are the people who can really get things done. They'll be the source of ideas. They're the future leaders. And it really is about different ways of thinking, different ideas. You're not hiring clones. You shouldn't just hire people who have the same kind of university the same kind of course, you need to hire people who have got something a bit different to offer. And I think that's where, again, a lot of companies, they develop a kind of model that they think works. And then they hire as many people as they can who fit that description. I'm not interested in their CV. I'm interested in talking to them, figuring out what makes them tick, what makes them someone who I could imagine joining our business and bringing something different to it. And I was going to ask about that process of the CV, because it feels a very outdated model for A, how careers now look as well, but even just the way that people approach them. Is there a way that you've changed your hiring over the years? I know that some startup founders are now talking about the CV last principle and blind recruiting, not looking at names, not looking at CVs, getting them to answer questions about the business and taking it that way forward. You, you must have adapted it. I suppose the question is, how have you adapted that over the 20 years of hiring? Yeah, increasingly, that's the way a lot of hiring is, is done. I don't think it has to be. For me, there've been a few pivotal times. I remember on occasion, you'd read someone's CV going back, you know, 10, 15 years and you think, wow, they sound amazing. I'm really looking forward to meeting them. I know they're going to be great. I'm sure we're going to want to hire them. And you meet them and they're nothing like their CV. How on earth can that person have such an impressive CV and yet interview in a way that I just think, no, I can't imagine ever wanting to work with them. And equally the other way around. Sometimes people who on paper had qualifications or background or experience that just didn't sound particularly inspiring. And they're the most amazing person we meet in person. I've realized that CVs just don't give a good read on people. The more you can do, I think, to really get to the heart of what makes someone who they are, what can they really offer? What are they passionate about? What have they done in life that's interesting and different? Those are things you want to get from them. And CVs just don't really do that. So getting people to make videos about themselves, blind recruiting, I think really important now to have gender balance shortlists to get a cross-section of your organization involved in the recruitment. You want to make your business feel as welcoming as it possibly can to people of any background. And I think that's one of the failings really of society as a whole in the UK for the last 10, 20 years is we've not done a great job of tapping into the skills and resources and know-how that people have. And I think organizations have hired from a very narrow field. And I think that's something which absolutely has to change. We all need to be much more conscious of people's different upbringings, different things that people can offer. And I know all the teams at Octopus are really focused on that now. It's very important, the whole issue of diversity. And sometimes we are too simplistic the way that we characterize diversity as well. And I think you're right in terms of trying to get as many different backgrounds and experiences and all of these things really help shape 
people's viewpoints. And that is so important to any organization or company that wants to progress. In terms of looking to the future, you've already disrupted a number of industries over the last five to 10 years in particular. Where do you see the opportunities for the rest of the decade and beyond that? I mean, one of the things that I always think about is you look at some of the biggest companies that have developed over the last 15 years in terms of Spotify, Netflix, Facebook. They're all entertainment companies. And actually, people don't spend vast amounts on entertainment. They spend more on energy, education, and transport, and actual industries like that, which are even less disrupted. And so I'd be fascinated to hear about where you think the opportunities are for the coming decade and beyond. Well, I think there absolutely is enormous scope for disruption in all those sectors you mentioned. Any sector that thinks it's immune to the impact of disruption, they're just kidding themselves because technology really has the scope to revolutionize pretty much every part of our lives, every part of the economy. For us, we're really excited by what we can do in financial services and in energy. But I would hesitate to say that we're going to do certain things or not do certain things because in the end, it comes down to the people who can make that happen. So if you said to me 10 years ago, will Octopus ever be in the energy sector? I'd have probably laughed at you. So, well, of course not. But in the end, we had an idea and then we met Greg. And those two things together came to make Octopus Energy possible. And without either of those, it wouldn't have happened. Where does that idea generation come from? How do you have a structure in place that develops that? We are very attuned to customers. I think every business would tell you they really care about customers. Very few businesses live that and breathe that. If you ask your listeners to name companies that they think really do an amazing job of looking after their customers, you wouldn't get very many names back. There aren't many businesses that I think absolutely are utterly customer-centric in what they do. Really not many. That is where the opportunity is for me. Finding areas, sectors where customers get a bad deal, companies just take them for granted, or where things are done in a very outdated kind of way. That's true of so many parts of the economy nowadays. One thing that I think is going to see a lot of change in the year ahead is healthcare. It's an enormous part of GDP. Technology has got a role to play. I don't think it's gone anywhere near as far as it's going to. Many of the things I remember hearing about in my lectures at university when I studied biochem and pharmacology 25, 30 years ago, they're now starting to come into everyday life. What is possible now with technology is incredible. We've just brought a team into Octopus who specialise in healthcare technology. So I think it's going to be incredible to invest into that sector in the years ahead. It's something we're really excited by. But other sectors have got the same opportunity too. That's part of the excitement of investment. Things never stand still. There's always change going on. And it's about spotting those sectors and then figuring what are we going to do about it? How are we going to create a team to capitalise on that? Whether it's building a business in that sector or creating a fund management team to invest into it. Just to pick up on the healthcare side of things, how much does culture come into this? And I know through the pandemic, you spent a huge amount of your time on a plane traveling around the world, Australia, the States, Japan. How much does culture matter when it comes to sectors? We have the NHS, which is held in quite high regard, and it has become such a mainstay of the British institution with that. And when governments or companies try and innovate in it, they can often be met with scepticism about how they're tackling the NHS. So I'd just love to hear where you think the opportunities for the UK are when it comes to healthcare innovation. People in the UK are rightly very possessed and very protective of the NHS. And certainly when you look at the experience that many other countries have, I think we probably are right to be. But you also see the role that technology has played over the past year. So my sister-in-law and brother are both doctors. My sister-in-law works in a very rural part of the Southwest. 
And when the pandemic hit, they had to swap to doing a lot of online consultations. She'd never done that before, but she said, this is actually really pretty revolutionary. I don't have to drive 10 or 15 miles to see a patient. I can have a quick check-in with them on Zoom and see how they are. And it makes her far more efficient. And it means she can get to see more patients per day. Now, some of that will go back to in-person consultations again, I'm sure. But some of this new way of working will remain part of the culture going forwards. Where I think particular change is needed is being open-minded to looking at ways in which a small amount of investment can have a big payback. And I know over the years, we've seen many medtech businesses that would say they had a really strong economic case, but they couldn't persuade the NHS to take up their technology. And I think creating a culture where those businesses get more of a fair hearing is going to become important. But you're right, different countries, different cultures have different ways of doing things. And that's part of the challenge of an entrepreneur is where's the best market for what you do? Is it in your home country or not? Many of the businesses that we back see the US as a land of immense opportunity, but very hard to dabble in a market like the US. You've got to be fully committed if you want to go international as an entrepreneur. You've got to recognize the changes that will mean, and you've got to do it quickly, generally, to make sure that you don't find that your ideas are taken up by other businesses. Whether you go international as an entrepreneur is one of those big themes that you've got to address. If you were in your 20s and your formative years now in the year 2021, what would your advice be to yourself? Where do you think that Chris would be looking? What would he be trying to start his career with? Some of the big trends I've noticed when I left university, we almost all wanted to get jobs with big financial services companies, management consultancies, investment banks, law firms, accountancy firms, and almost everyone I knew did that. And yet many people I know, they have a feeling that really their careers have been a bit unfulfilled, yet they're now in their mid 40s, stuck doing a job they've done for 20 odd years and they can't easily change. I think it's a real shame. So my absolute advice to anyone would be, make sure you find something that you really enjoy doing. You want to wake up in the morning excited by what you're going to be spending the day doing. Recent times have created so many new opportunities. All sorts of startups are going to be exciting places to work. Trends like climate change, that is an enormous area. It's going to take many decades for the climate change war to be fought and won. And that's going to create enormous opportunities for people to play all sorts of different roles in that. So I think I'll certainly be looking at how I could build a business to play a part in tackling climate change. I think that is the trend that's going to define the next 20 years. And the idea that society's expectations of business have changed phenomenally over the years. And I think that is going to create new opportunities to do things differently, to build businesses that people relate to, to build businesses that focus on customers in a modern digital kind of way. Every day, new businesses are being created. Thousands have sprung up over the past year. Innovation never dies. I would encourage people to think about what do they enjoy doing? Where do they think they can make a difference? You don't need a unique idea to start a business. Very few businesses do anything genuinely unique. Nothing the octopus does is really unique. But what is unique about us is how we go about doing it. Our relentless focus on customer service. But those things are ideas that other people could adopt too. And I'd encourage people to really find something they believe in. Find a cause that you're really passionate about. I agree. And we will certainly be endeavouring at Jimmy's Jobs of the Future to try and explain all those opportunities that are out there. Thanks, Chris, so much for joining us. It would be great if we can do this in person later in the year, because I know that listeners will have found that a really fascinating insight into the mind of an entrepreneur and, and what changes we may see coming down the road as well. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok, and of course, our best moments are on YouTube. 
To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.